Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to all of you and also those watching remotely. Uh, today I'd like to introduce Dr. Alana Cass. Alana joined us last summer. Um, she is now the professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. She most recently came to us from um, Los Angeles working at uh, Cedar sinai as well as uh, Mostly just Catherine School of Medicine at UCLA, yeah. sorry. Um, her research is focused primarily on hereditary gynecologic malignancies, namely those caused by BRCA uh, related mutations, as well as DNA mismatch repair mutations. Um, Alana is a clinical researcher, has been involved in numerous uh, clinical studies as an investigator. Um, she also has a substantial teaching repertoire. Uh, most notably, is, is, is an examiner on the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And today she's going to talk to us about her BRCA-associated gynecologic cancer implications for risk reduction. She does not have any conflict of interest. She does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device. And she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. If you need the CME code, it is displayed outside the auditorium. Thank you very much. And uh, I am happy to entertain any payments from any of those sources as above. So that's always negotiable. Um, but I, uh, I welcome the opportunity to speak to you all and realized as I was standing here um, and innocently asked, so who comes to this talk? <laughs> because uh, obviously this is a a wonderful opportunity for some cross-pollination between basic science researchers. I see some friends in the audience, and I uh, sort of said hello to them. Um, mine is uh, largely clinical research, so I won't apologize for that, but I just want to sort of couch this in terms of this is largely clinical research. Um, but if you will indulge me, um, I will tell you some stories uh, in that will embed a little bit of history, a little bit of genetic epidemiology, and really tell the story of how it is that I came to be doing research um, in the arena of BRCA mutations um, and how over the course of my 21 years at Cedars, uh, really being invested in some of the um, questions that, that were derived from caring for these patients and seeing their families, how we tried to make some progress with respect to risk-reducing um, strategies for these women. So without further ado, let me, this is supposed to advance, let's see or not, that's okay. So um, some of the, again, no disclosures, and what we'll talk a little bit about today is some of the prevalence of BRCA mutations, uh, the incidence of gynecologic cancers um, amongst BRCA mutation carriers, and then what I sort of describe is sort of the, the phenotype-genotype correlation, what we've begun to understand in ovarian cancer, how these cancers behave. Um, and then we'll talk about some implications for risk-reducing uh, strategies for these women. So again, I think uh, just as a, perhaps a, 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 a renew, sorry, a, a background uh, for some people in the audience when it comes to gynecologic cancers, we're focusing on the green uh, piece of the pie here. And you can see that of the cancers that principally we take care of in gynecologic uh, in the gynecologic cancer world. Ovarian cancer really accounts for probably on the order of about 28%. Um, here at Dartmouth, I have come to appreciate that's probably on the order, a little bit higher for relative proportion. We see a bit less cervical cancer in, in this neck of the woods. But um, no matter who you are and where you are, I think the notable uh, uh, sort of uh, figure is on the far left of my screen, far right for you, which is that that green piece of the pie dominates, yeah? So most of the mortality from gynecologic cancers comes from ovarian cancer. Um, and as you can see, some statistics there about the anticipated uh, new, new uh, diagnoses and deaths in this year. So uh, for the pathologists in the audience, you may bristle a little bit at the choice of this particular picture. but. Um, the ovary is a fascinating organ for many different reasons, but what I try to explain to my learners is that there are so many different cancers that can arise from the ovary. It's, it's kind of unique in that regard. But when you actually look at the ingredients of the ovary, it's the M&M coating shell of the ovary that is actually responsible for the majority of ovarian cancers and the majority of deaths from ovarian cancer. That is, and I'm sorry, this is not projecting well on this big screen, I apologize. 
but that's the serous layer, literally a single layer um, outside of the coating of the ovary, um, which for reasons as we will discuss, uh, puts it right in the crosshairs of all sorts of interesting exposure to hormones and environmental exposures and sort of just the chaotic milieu of the peritoneal cavity. And for lots of different reasons, it is the actual ground zero for the majority of ovarian cancers that we're going to be discussing today. And I'm sorry, I, this is not working for me, so I'm just going to prance around a little bit. Um, this just highlights the point that serous, that epithelial ovarian cancers, again, from that candy coating, that M&M coating lining of the ovary, accounts for about 95% of ovarian cancers. We're going to be focusing on the majority of those, uh, the most common player, which is the serous ovarian cancers. And you can see that the median age is around 55. So the current thinking with regards to ovarian carcinogenesis really boil down to, oops, you don't have the rest of this, which you need. There we go. Two different mechanisms. Um, you can see on the right-hand side, this sort of sea anemone-like um, kind of graspy pink structure is, of course, meant to represent the fallopian tube. The fallopian tube, most notably the fimbria, the finger-like projections of the end of the fallopian tube, which was, in point of fact, not that big of a deal when I was in medical school. We really liked the fallopian tube. You get pregnant, if you have a fallopian tube, don't care, next, right? But fast forward now, so much of our understanding about ovarian carcinogenesis actually relates to the fallopian tube. And we believe that it may, in fact, be the fallopian tube, spoiler alert, which is, in fact, the site of origin of most of what we conventionally have considered ovarian cancer. And the pathways that you can see here, we believe that this is what drives most of the BRCA-associated ovarian cancers. A BRCA mutation carrier has a deficiency in some of these proteins, which can sort of nudge a patient along the pathway to developing uh, this ovarian cancer or tubal cancer. Um, and we commonly see as a sort of a precursor or an obligate um, sort of companion to uh, 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 early cancers of the fallopian tube, the P53 signature, which is the harbinger of P53 mutations, which is one of the fundamental mutations, the most common mutation as it happens in ovarian cancer. The other pathway um, that perhaps many of us learned in medical school some years ago is the pathway of the actual ovary, which may relate to endometriosis, um, the incessant ovulation theory put forth by Falthala in 1950 or 60, which was basically um, uh, positing that it is the repeated damage to that candy coating, remember that M&M coated ovary, the repeated damage of ovulation that allows for, uh, again, uh, mutations to occur, um, especially in the milieu of a hormonally rich environment within the peritoneal cavity, um, and that that and that by extension inflammation, subject to the uh, proximity to gonadotropins, that seems to actually drive the type 1 cancers, which tend more commonly to be low-grade cancers, not the high-grade serous cancers, but some of the other histologies, including endometrioid cancers, um, that, uh, that are less common. So with that, ooh, is this something for me? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So we're going to focus then on genetic mutations, germline mutations that occur in ovarian cancer, focusing on, for the most part, serous or those high-grade serous ovarian cancers that really drive most of the deaths from ovarian cancer. So big picture, about a quarter of cancers are probably a result of a hereditary mutation passed along, of course, in the um, uh, germ cells from one generation to the next. Further study has revealed that there are many mutations uh, that are seen, but the big bad players that drive most of this are BRCA1 depicted in uh, red and BRCA2 that is depicted in this sort of a bluish color. I'm not going to speak a lot about some of those other genetic mutations, but suffice to say that in 2020, we still don't have a lot of data to understand, did these cancers have a similar phenotype? have a similar age of presentation, and similar response rates to the more common BRCA1 and 2 mutation carriers. And not surprisingly, we have even less data to inform conversations with patients about risk-reducing strategies for these mutations because they are just much less frequent. But I can certainly chat about that at a later time if you're interested. So um, I'm from Los Angeles. 
uh, for the past 21 years. And you can't really talk about uh, BRCA mutations, where I came from, without talking about Angelina Jolie. For those in the audience of my vintage, in our day it was Gilda Radner, but let me just assure you that has completely been eclipsed by Angelina Jolie. Funny, in fact, that we talk in the literature about the Angelina Jolie effect, which really led to her very, you might remember, for those of you that followed the news, a very public sharing of her journey with her BRCA mutation. Her mother died of ovarian cancer. Um, and consequently, um, there was a tremendous uptick in the number of individuals who were getting tested for BRCA mutations uh, because of uh, Angelina's very private, uh, very public sharing of her story, which was actually good. Uh, we know that the BRCA mutations can lead to an increased risk, a significantly increased lifetime uh, risk of breast cancer on the order of about 50 to 85 percent as well as secondary breast cancer, so the bilateral cancers that we tend to see, and then ovarian cancer for BRCA1 on the order of about 40 to 60% in BRCA2, probably half of that, about 10 to 20%, right? And then some increased risk of other cancers, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about because I'm going to focus below the belt, which is my, that's my, that's how I roll. So what's important about some of the data that we have that guides us with respect to how often do these mutations occur in the average population. So I put up three large studies for you, by no means necessarily the biggest and by no means necessarily the most current, but the sort of go-to studies. And what you can see depicted here on one side um, are the risks of breast cancer, and here the risks of ovarian cancer. Again, I'm going to focus on this. And this is further stratified then by the risk of BRCA1 and BRCA2. And what you can see in these three respective studies, each of them with slightly different populations, but large numbers of patients on the order of about uh, you know, greater than 1,000 patients for the most part, um, is that you can see the risk of developing ovarian cancer uh, for BRCA1 versus BRCA2 largely picks up on the theme that I've just discussed with you of the overall increased uh, risk of these cancers. Um, but I need to point out to you that the, one of the notable differences is that Mary Claire King's study from the Fred Hutch in Seattle, this was an incredibly important study that focused on women in New York with breast cancer, right? And was all comers with breast cancer who were Jewish. Family history didn't matter. Um, age or diagnosis didn't matter. And what this study did that's very important is it defined for us decade by decade in the proband with breast cancer, as well as her first degree and second degree relatives, getting blood samples and personal cancer histories from that sort of wider uh, ripple effect of these, of these starting with the proband, really informs some of the data that we use even today in the context of counseling our Jewish patients. What's the risk of developing cancer by the age of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, et cetera. So a very important study, okay? So these are some of the risks that I've shared with you that have been defined in the literature. But we have to consider the source of the patients in these studies, because I don't think it's a big surprise in this audience. A lot of these studies were done in Caucasian women from Eastern Europe, okay? We don't have a lot of data about what the prevalence or lifetime risk of cancer of these cancer, of, of, associated with these mutations looks like in other more diverse and inclusive populations. So I shared with you two recent studies, um, one in a population of women from um, African Americans, one from the Middle East and Southern Europe, um, but what we understand about these BRCA1 and 2 mutations is these are enormous genes. Most of the mutations, the germline mutations occur, are private mutations that cluster within a family. There are some ethnic groups in which we see a founder effect, certain common mutations that occur and recur over uh, generations, yeah? And specifically, um, one of the populations that we've studied the most or have the most data to study is Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe. And we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll kind of take a little side diversion into some history, which really is important about how we understand this population. But I would submit to you we are woefully deficient when it comes to other populations, as outlined here, African um, individuals from Africa proper, um, as well as other parts of the world. And what we have yet to discover is 
are, the founder, are there founder mutations in some of these other ethnic groups? What's the prevalence in these individuals? All of which is incredibly important for us to start to be able to have conversations about should we be screening and whom and with what kind of screening tests so we can actually really um, approach prevention uh, with a much better eye towards uh, better care. It's interesting that in this population of about 300 individuals of African origin, half of the, half of the mutations or the um, pathogenic sequence variants that were found in this population of individuals who were uh, self-identified as Africans, um, half of them were unique to what they believe to be the continent of Africa. So still very much that we have to learn about these populations. And you can see as well that about 16% that drew from uh, the Middle East and from Southern Europe appeared to be unique to this actual portion of the, of the world um, and these ethnic groups. So we can't talk about founder mutations without a little bit of a nod to genetic epidemiology and that interesting phenomenon of how founder mutations come to pass. So uh, the concept is that there is a population, and for whatever reason, because of a decrease in population or migration or isolation, whether self-imposed or uh, externally imposed, certain mutations can become more enriched in a population, right? And that can actually result in a mutation being much more common in a certain group of people. And the story then is important, that concept, as we understand a little bit about Ashkenazi Jews versus Sephardic Jews, and just a really quick explanation, Ashkenazi Jews derive principally from Eastern Europe. Sephardic Jews seem to derive a little bit more from Spain and from Northern Africa. Um, Ashkenazi Jews, again, the population that we have studied the most, that the studies I shared with you, Mary Claire King's data, et cetera, that was really all in Ashkenazi Jews. But this is an interesting story about waves of migration because of isolation and persecution and where do Jews end up kind of shuffling about in the world. Um, and we see these three mutations. These are the three founder mutations, which, as it happens, if you are an Ashkenazi Jewish woman and you have a BRCA mutation, 95% of those women will have one of those three mutations, which is pretty amazing when you consider that these are genes that for the most part have pretty private familial mutations, which can be completely different in all sorts of different uh, families, right? So common, in fact, are these mutations that one in 40 healthy Ashkenazi Jews just walking around minding their own business, one in 40 Jewish women um, and men, by extension, have the, one of these three mutations, okay? When you look at Sephardic populations, so from these other parts of the world, um, about 3% of unaffected women seem to have these mutations. But again, we still don't have a lot of data in these populations. But again, it's really interesting to posit sort of where these mutations started, where they spread, etc. Genetic epidemiology traces these three founder mutations as spontaneous mutations that occurred somewhere in the Ural Mountains in the 11th century. And because of sort of this concept of, uh, of isolation and uh, Jewish migration, we now see that one in 40 Ashkenazi Jewish individuals has this mutation. So it's kind of interesting to posit what that looks like. But the story continues. So now we move from the 11th century in the Ural Mountains to Spain, in or around the 12th and 13th century. And Spain was, as it happens, a hub of Jewish life and thought and culture, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, you're well familiar with um, uh, Isabel and Ferdinand and some of the decrees that came about discovering the New World, and some of the lesser told story, which was a desire to purge Spain of non-Catholic Spaniards. And this resulted in quite a few sort of um, emigrations, uh, to mostly forced, of Jews out of Spain, which again was quite populous with Jews at the time. Um, but by 1391, about half of the Jews trying to um, make their lives better had chosen to convert to Catholicism in order to abide by the new king and queen and, and stay in Spain. Um, but expulsion continued and uh, on the order of about, it was estimated, about 200,000 Jews, actually in total, 200 to 300,000 Jews, actually just chose to convert to Catholicism or were kicked out of Spain, right? And it turns out that today, 20% of Spanish men in Spain actually are believed to descend, have the same actual uh, genetic uh, um, sort of a fingerprint as to suggest that they are in fact Jewish. And many of these people have no idea that they're Jewish because they, their uh, forebears, again, had been part of this conversos uh, phenomenon. 
This becomes relevant and important for us, and I'm going to come full circle back to Los Angeles, I promise, because not surprisingly, you don't have to be a tremendous student of colonization and what happened to the world um, with respect to dominating powers, because not surprisingly, Spain, as you can see, dominated an awful lot of the colonization that occurred in the Americas, and we're going to focus, of course, on the Western United States. And so not surprisingly, a lot of people who were Spanish um, and Jewish converted and made their way ultimately by, uh, you know, hook or by crook over generations to the Western portion of the United States. And indeed, uh, one of our colleagues, Jeff Weitzel at City of Hope, which is a large cancer center in Duarte, California, had at one point a clinic of largely Latina young women, because remember, in 2020, more than 50% of individuals in Los Angeles County are Latina or Latino, and Spanish is the most common language spoken in Los Angeles County today. And he was curious about this understudied population of Latina women, all of whom had pretty full-on family histories of cancer, breast cancer for the most part, but some breast and ovary. So he undertook a study looking at their DNA and in fact found that of this individual, of Latina individuals, that the majority of these women who had genetic mutations had in fact one of the three Jewish founder mutations, which was really pretty cool and provocative, suggesting that this was all logical in the context of um, the exp expulsion from Spain and colonization of, of Western, um, sort of the Western portion of the United States. So I would submit to you this is a long-winded way of basically explaining there is so much yet still that we do not understand about the prevalence of these mutations as we look at different populations that still requires further study so we can better inform our counseling for these high-risk individuals. But moving on, Comparing for you in sort of a, a larger tabular form, what is the risk of carrying a BRCA mutation, looking at the general population versus Ashkenazi Jews, whom we've studied the most? I think this is just kind of a handy table to highlight some of the risk factors that we're looking for when we meet patients and care for patients to identify would they benefit from BRCA genetic testing, yes or no. And you can see some of the red flags here. So again, one in 40 Ashkenazi Jews, it's about a log fold less frequent in the general population. Women with breast cancer, again, this is derived from that study of, of Mary Claire Kings. About one in 10 Ashkenazi Jewish women has, breast, has a, um, a BRCA mutation if she, has a B, if she is Jewish, whereas in the general population, it's about one in 50. But you can see as we look at a younger age of, age of diagnosis, male breast cancer, or more recent data to suggest if a woman is Jewish, versus not Jewish and has ovarian or tubal or something called primary peritoneal cancer, you can see that the risk goes up to about 50% for these individuals uh, being found to have a BRCA mutation if they're Jewish. So I will just add that in, I guess, late 2019, the FDA has now actually approved and will pay for genetic testing for all individuals who have ovarian cancer. Previously, there had just been individuals who were Jewish but they've now expanded to include coverage for all genetic testing in women with ovarian cancer. And a nod to our genetic counselors, if any of them are here, they do a great job meeting and triaging our patients so that we can get them tested uh, to identify mutation carriers, mostly so we can help their family members, right? So we move on, and um, again, this is self-evident to you all as researchers, but I think there's no surprise at all that there is a phenotype-genotype correlation. And much of what I've studied is, uh, what are, how do these BRCA-associated gynecologics, specifically ovarian cancers, actually behave, and how does that differ from their sporadic counterparts? And more importantly, how do I use that to better care for my patients um, when, we, when we identify them? So what we know about um, these BRCA-associated ovarian cancers is curiously I like to tell patients the good news and the bad news. The bad news is, as a BRCA mutation carrier, that's what caused your ovarian cancer. The good news is you seem to have better survival. And this has been borne out in many studies. As you can see here, I've just included some of them, including a study that we did of individuals in LA. But the survival uh, advantage is, is impressive, right? And what underlies that, we don't completely understand, but we believe it relates in some part to an enhanced sensitivity to cisplatin or carboplatin, which is the foundation of how we treat ovarian cancers. The double-stranded DNA breaks, and perhaps the underlying BRCA mutation that itself results in DNA double-stranded breaks. 
um, and the impaired ability of the BRCA mutation carrier to use alternative genetic pathways to repair those defects means that, as I like to explain to my patients, you just get more bang for your buck with this chemotherapy than an individual who has a sporadic cancer. Having said that, the real winners here, as illustrated by Yang, who studied the TCGA, um, the, you know, the Human Genome Atlas uh, study, are the BRCA2 mutation carriers depicted here in this sort of hot pink survival curve. Again, why they're the winners compared to BRCA1, we don't really understand. But this theme comes through again and again that BRCA mutations confer an enhanced survival benefit. Further, we've wondered then, okay, knowing that BRCA mutations um, lead to DNA damage, what about other mechanisms? For example, what about somatic mutations in the BRCA gene, which occur very commonly on the order of, what, 70 80% of cancers of the ovary? If you look for a tissue mutation, we'll have a, a mutation in BRCA. And indeed, what we find in looking at this curve, again, is that the germline mutation carriers depicted in blue and the somatic uh, mutation carriers of BRCA, as well as other genes that are involved in homologous recombination, do appear to have an improved survival compared to those individuals who have neither somatic nor germline mutations, right? And this is important. This is actually a population of women with ovarian cancer who were interrogated again in Seattle at University of Washington where they did their sort of own homegrown testing before uh, we had some of the more widely used genetic testing uh, platforms. Um, this speaks to the fact that there is something about that homologous recombination deficiency which enhances survival for these, for these individuals. And um, one of the largest studies to date, this was over 1,800 women um, in the gynecologic oncology study now dead and reborn as the NRG, known to some of you in the audience. This actually looked at individuals, all of whom as a prerequisite for study entry, had actually uh, genetic testing uh, done. And what they found here is the exact same theme that the BRCA2 mutation carriers had statistically significant improvement in survival compared to BRCA1. But lo and, and the reference group, of course, here is those with no identifiable mutation. Um, but the interesting thing, and they tried to um, adjust for all of the factors that you would think that we know in ovarian cancer would drive survival. Was there cancer left over at the time of surgery? Could we get it all out? What was the patient's age? What was their stage, et cetera? But interestingly, our standard sort of uh, therapies of Taxol and Carbo and Bevacizumab, which was the uh, sort of backbone of this particular research study, the presence of mutations in some of these homologous recombination genes did not predict response to this combination of drug therapy. So again, we're a little bit in the dark. People live longer, but we don't completely get why. If we think it's cisplatin, that seems to be a little bit watered out when we add Taxol and Bevacizumab, which was, again, this sort of standard uh, backbone of therapy in this particular study. So again, this phenomenon, but we don't completely get why. We have observed, and I just listed here, some smaller studies looking at different agents in which we have seen that there is some uh, difference in the response of BRCA-associated germline mutation carriers uh, to some of these drugs compared to the sporadic cancers. And specifically, Doxel appears to be a drug that works better in BRCA mutation carriers. Taxol, as it happens, may not be the cat's meow really so much when it comes to BRCA mutation carriers. And these studies have very much informed our choice of drugs for BRCA mutation carriers, typically in the context of recurrence, which is very common for ovarian cancer, because I'm more inclined to lean towards doxel than I am retreating with taxol. And finally, and most importantly, these tumors continue to respond really well to platinum drugs. So we try to factor in and cycle in and use, again, uh, platinum drugs when at all possible, because we really do continue to see very good activity with platinum-based agents, even in the context of recurrent um, sort of multiple-line uh, ovarian cancers associated with these mutations. But moving on, the really exciting news, of course, that many people in this audience are familiar with is the PARP inhibitor. And the PARP inhibitor takes advantage of um, polyadenosine ribose. And what we see in the BRCA mutation carrier, sort of the big news was that this is a drug that is unequivocally more effective in women with BRCA mutations. Again, probably relating to the multiple pathways of DNA repair and the individual with deficient double-strand breaks 
by virtue of her BRCA mutation, is rendered more susceptible to the effects of a PARP inhibitor, which obviously blocks out another, the base excision pathway uh, sort of tool in the toolkit for a cell, rendering this drug exquisitely effective in BRCA mutation carriers. And the big news was really this study that came out in December of 2018 completely rocked our world. Because while there had been many studies looking at the efficacy of PARP inhibitors in women as recurrent disease, and should we actually add it into our primary treatment, this was a study that looked at individuals who had newly diagnosed advanced stage ovarian cancer, again, the majority of women with BRCA mutations, the vast majority of them germline mutation carriers, although there were four women that had somatic mutations. And what the study found is that if these women were given a laparib, a PARP inhibitor, at the conclusion of their standard taxol and carboplatin chemotherapy, if they were given a laparib versus placebo, they had an almost three-year median prolongation of their disease-free interval. I got to tell you, I don't have any therapy. I think, Carmelita, we don't have anything in our armamentarium that can promise that kind of result, right? So this really rocked our world. And, of course, not surprisingly, people have been scrambling ever since in the clinical trial and pharmaceutical arenas to figure out how can we replicate that good mojo for other people. Does this, in fact, apply to people who have somatic mutations? And what about, remember that list of little pieces of all of those other germline mutations that I'd shown you on the first slide? We don't have that data yet. And I should even tell you, I should tell them, I think, that this was all advanced stage patients but I just started a patient with stage 2C BRCA2-associated ovarian cancer on a PARP inhibitor. And her insurance company has not figured out that I actually don't have the data to do that. Don't tell them, okay? <laughs> because it's a super expensive drug. But my thinking is, oh my God, like how could I possibly not offer this to a patient with ovarian cancer that's BRCA-associated? This is pretty much rocking the world, okay? So with this data in mind, um, again, homologous recombination, and how you measure this, everyone has their own little kind of brew. It's like kombucha, right? Everybody's got their recipe, and uh, people share it or they don't. And we're still trying to figure out what, what is the measure of homologous recombination. But this is what is sexy and hot right now for us in our world. Do we have a test that's reproducible to identify the individual with homologous recombination? And is that a patient in whom we should be using PARP inhibitors? Or now I would say pdl one inhibitors, or both, or everything. Are those the people that we should be using precision medicine to identify to capitalize upon the success that we saw with the PARP inhibitor and BRCA mutation carrier? So that's what's very in right now in our world. But let's move on to some of the other more provocative issues in the remaining time together, which is a little bit more about the site of origin for these cancers. So I've already alluded to the fact that we, again, when I was in medical school, all we heard about was ovarian cancer. The tube, who cared? Peritoneum was really just you had to get into the peritoneal cavity to do surgery. That was all you really cared about, right? Like, who thought about the peritoneum? And it turns out that, in point of fact, BRCA mutation carriers have an increased risk of cancer of these three distinct organs, if you will, and we only gained insight into this. It's pretty cool. When we started actually doing risk-reducing surgery, an individual who we identified as having a BRCA mutation and we started to notice, thanks to our very astute pathology colleagues, that these women had cancers, early, early small cancers, but not in the ovary. It was in the fallopian tube. And suddenly, people were like, what, the fallopian tube? Who cares about the fallopian tube? So now we really care about the fallopian tube, right? So this is what we've seen from some studies, and I'll show you some data that we looked at as well. But the long and the short of it is that the occult cancers that we're seeing at the time of risk-reducing surgery, we identify a woman with a BRCA mutation, we talk to her about her options, she agrees to have her tubes and ovaries removed to prevent her from getting these cancers, and lo and behold, what we're finding is that fully 80% of these patients at the time of uh, I'm sorry, yes, at the time of their um, risk-reducing surgery, have a cancer or a, 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 a carcinoma in situ in the fallopian tubes. And the ovaries are just like, lo di do di do sitting here doing nothing. And so we begin to posit that, in fact, that pathway I'd first shown you of carcinogenesis, it may, in fact, be the fallopian tube that is ground zero for all of these cancers. And we believe it relates we hypothesize, perhaps to the fimbria, again, with the 
significant surface area of all of those little sea anemone-like invaginations, the proximity of that fallopian tube to the ovary, which is a hotbed of hormones, of course, and then the peritoneal cavity itself, because the fallopian tube is just sort of, you know, sweeping around a little bit like Nemo style in that whole <laughs> ickiness. And perhaps what happens is, in point of fact, we have a precancer lesion, which remember the BRCA mutation carrier, by virtue of her deficient BRCA protein, is predisposed to some kind of precancer lesion in that fallopian tube. And there's just so much surface area that can happen. And then perhaps what we see as the ovarian cancer is nothing more than a drop metastasis from the fallopian tube onto the ovary. Patient comes to surgery, it's all a mess, you can't tell what's what, and we've always attributed that to the ovary when in point of fact it was the fallopian tube. All right, so again, super interesting uh, model put forth by Dr. Crum and his mates in Massachusetts that perhaps, as I say, it's the fallopian tube we need to be paying attention to. And this sort of shows you, and I have embarked upon a couple of studies really looking at, you know, will the real precancer, <laughs> the precursor lesion for tubal cancer please stand up? Because you can imagine, right, the absolute chaos that this can invoke for patients when we're doing risk-reducing surgery. Our pathologists, with every intention of helping a patient, we're doing very excessive staining and lots of different testing and very fine sectioning of the tubes, and we find all sorts of rubbish. And then we have to really segregate what is real, what isn't, what's cancer, what's not. But this continuum has been defined of a P53 signature, which is itself a harbinger of a mutant P53 uh, protein, which then can lead to this serous tubal carcinoma in situ. And these definitely are linked. That is incontrovertible, as far as I'm concerned, based upon the literature and my read of it. So it's these lesions which, in fact, are the beginning of cancer that we see very commonly. So this is just a super little interesting side note. This is a mouse model. Let me introduce you, for those of you that aren't aware, of the mouse female anatomy. So this is, in point of fact, the uterus. Weird, right? Okay, that there is the, um, well, here, we can see it more better. This is the ovary, okay? And this is the ovary. And you can't really see the fallopian tube just just work with me. But what we see in this very elegant series of uh, experiments performed by Dr. Kim and Dr. Ronnie Drapkin, who was down in, Mass in, in Massachusetts when he did this work, is when they looked at a mouse model with a genetic mutation that they could actually activate and reproduce ovarian cancer, they found that if they took out an ovary, the mouse, when triggered, still developed what looked like ovarian cancer. When they took out the tube on that side, Mouse did not develop ovarian cancer on that side. When they took out both ovaries, mouse got cancer. When they took out both tubes, mouse did not get cancer. So some really elegant work to substantiate what we observed con almost contemporaneously from our pathology colleagues with these early precursor lesions actually in the fallopian tube. And so when it comes to risk-reducing strategies that we discuss for women we've identified with these pathogenic or germline BRCA mutations, not surprisingly, we have some obstacles when it comes to what can we offer these individuals by way of risk-reducing strategies. And part of that really stems from, I made this slide 20 years ago, and unfortunately, I have to stand before you and tell you we've made no progress in any of these things, which is pretty humbling, <laughs> literally, right? We continue to have all of these barriers when it comes to the early detection of ovarian cancer. And I would submit to you, we are really not any further along in understanding, even with our knowledge of the fallopian tube, what are some of the earliest precursor lesions? How do we detect them with our current modalities of CA125 serum testing and ultrasound? How can you possibly aspire to use any kind of imaging study to find these teeny, teeny little precursor lesions and ultimately the rapidity with which this cancer grows, the natural history of this cancer, it literally grows like a wildfire. It just doesn't give us, there's not much of a, of, a, of, a, of a runway for detection. So unfortunately, we've not made a lot of progress here. Nonetheless, I'm going to skip over this. Um, some, of the, some of the risk reducing strategies that we know from large, important um, databases include work from the Scandinavia in which Dr. Falconer looked at 
a population of women with ovarian cancer and um, worked backwards to figure out of those women who had had their tubes removed for whatever reason, one or both, um, noted that for women who had a salpingectomy, that significantly reduced their ovarian cancer risk. And interestingly enough, observed a dose-response effect, which is to say, if they'd had both of their tubes removed, they had an even lower risk of developing ovarian cancer than women who had just had one tube removed for whatever benign indication, right? Um, so we come to the conclusion based on this data, and we, this has been borne out in other studies, including a study in the Mayo Clinic, that removal of the fallopian tubes in and of itself is an important risk-reducing strategy for individuals. This is in the general population, but we posit could well be effective also for BRCA mutation carriers based on what we understand about how ovarian slash tubal cancer grows. Um, this is a similar study looking at Rochester Mayo Clinic population, and they found that ovarian cancer, again, you know, Olmsted County is a little bit like Scandinavia. Um, I'm from Minnesota, so I can say that. Um, because the, the Olmsted County has an amazing uh, registry that they keep forever and ever. For anyone who's trained there, you know what I'm talking about. Yep, I'm seeing some nodding heads. So they really track and find these people and keep them in the system. And indeed, the exact same relationship was noted. Um, fallopian tube excision, excision of the complete fallopian tube, right, uh, seemed to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Interestingly, we've long known that tubal ligation, just occluding the fallopian tube, also was associated with an ovarian cancer risk reduction, but we now have data, including this study, to show us that excision of the entire fallopian tube is actually more protective than just actually occluding the fallopian tube, right? So interesting data from history, um, et cetera. So what we know about risk-reducing surgery, taking out the tubes and ovaries, is that when I'm having this conversation with the BRCA mutation carrier, taking out her tubes and ovaries definitely prevents her from, reduces her risk dramatically of getting tubal or ovarian cancer, and parenthetically also reduces the risk of peritoneal carcinoma significantly. Don't completely understand that because, again, you understand the peritoneal cavity lines the entire abdomen. It's on everything, right? So how is it that removal of the tubes and ovaries in these women would reduce the risk of a peritoneal carcinoma? We don't completely understand that mechanism. And that risk seems to extend. For those of you who are thinking, well, certainly it must be the hormonal exposure. And you must see that effect perhaps more in a pronounced fashion in premenopausal women than postmenopausal women. But that is not the case. So we don't completely get that. But we know this is true from population-based studies. And you can see, in effect, that the risk of ovarian cancer, and I'm going to fold into that tubal and peritoneal cancer, is reduced on the order of about 80 to 90% in taking out the tubes and ovaries of a woman with the mutation. This column here is a little bit more hotly contested now in the, most, in the past couple of years than previously because we had observed a fairly statistically significant reduction in breast cancer if we took out the tubes and ovaries of a BRCA mutation carrier. Most of that effect was seen in women who were premenopausal, but still a salutary effect in women that were postmenopausal. Of late, this has been a little bit more hotly contested between two groups of researchers, some in Scandinavia and Susan Domchek in Pennsylvania. They can continue to have that battle, but effectively, we also do see that there is some reduction in breast cancer risk, taking out the tubes and ovaries, but that final actual magnitude of reduction is still somewhat controversial. So moving on then, these are the current recommendations for a BRCA mutation carrier. We know that the risk of developing uh, uh, tubal or ovarian cancer occurs in a young, at a younger age in BRCA1 mutation carriers than BRCA2 mutation carriers. Again, they seem to do the same thing. Why that is, I have no idea at all, but there it is. And the interval salpingectomy that we talked about, excising the entire fallopian tube, is something I discuss with my patients, but it is currently a part of a large national study, and we do not yet have mature data to show that taking out the fallopian tubes in and of itself is enough of a risk-reducing strategy that I can feel comfortable encouraging the patient to keep her ovaries for her lifetime. So we oftentimes recommend what's called a bridging salpingectomy, take out the fallopian tubes once the patient is completed her family, and then we recommend going back and taking out her ovaries, ideally when she gets closer to menopause. But we don't have the data yet to show that that's an effective risk-reducing strategy, like the data I had just shown you. It's safer and still sort of standard of care to take out the tubes and ovaries. The problem, of course, with that is it renders a woman postmenopausal at an early age with all of the resulting um, side effects that that can uh, cause.
So again, we've already talked about this um, and the pathology. My pathology colleagues know very well and spend lots of time very carefully, very thoroughly sectioning the entire tube and ovary because we now understand that the more you look, the more you'll find. And we do this very fine sectioning in order to really enhance the detection of these early precursor lesions of the fallopian tube. So I'm going to skip through this in the interest of time to make sure that I have time for questions. This is just a study that we did. Um, because what I want to get to is sort of the conclusions of our study and share with you a little bit more recent data. And this is about the pretty chilling results of um, these occult cancers. Do you remember I described to you that the pathology docs, our colleagues, find these early cancers, um, mostly in the fallopian tube. And we've long thought, if we understand, again, posing the original question, what is the natural history and behavior of these serous cancers and BRCA mutation carriers, it would stand to reason that if we find these cancers at their earliest phase, we should actually have really improved survival and spare these women um, the, the bad mortality that I'd shown you on that first slide. What, in fact, we find um, is that currently, amongst BRCA mutation carriers, again, speaking to what, what are some of the effective strategies for prevention, in most series, including ours, of about 260 women with BRCA mutations, approximately 5 to 8% of women will already have an occult cancer, even though they have no symptoms, completely normal transvaginal ultrasound in CA125, which are our standard modalities that we use to screen women. Um, we see that this is more common in BRCA1 mutation carriers than BRCA2 mutation carriers, and not surprisingly, the risk of cancer goes up as women get older, right? What we've also found is that about 2% of these women, despite the fact that they have a risk-reducing surgery to remove their tubes and ovaries, are at risk to develop a subsequent primary peritoneal carcinoma. In a larger meta-analysis of over 6,000 patients that was just published about a month ago, that risk appears to be about 0.54%. So when I counsel the patient, I tell her, that there's a risk of about 1% that even though she has her tubes and ovaries removed and assuming they're completely normal, she does have a risk, unfortunately, of developing this cancer, but it's a very, very low risk, right? Um, I think the chilling thing is that when we looked at our experience with patients who ended up having these occult cancers, and this is reflected here and in our study, that of the women who had these tubal carcinoma in situ lesions, again, we only had nine in our study, two of them actually presented with full-blown peritoneal cancer up to five years after their risk-reducing surgery. Moreover, in the larger meta-analysis um, of the people who had these, who had an occult cancer caught at its very earliest, earliest little teeny, I mean, you couldn't see it. It was the pathologist that found it. Fully 20% of those women recurred and ultimately died of their early occult tubal carcinoma, which is pretty chilling and, again, poses you understand the challenge in how do we possibly identify the earliest precursor lesions for these cancers. And this is um, a study that we uh, participated in, looking at 32 women with BRCA mutation carriers, 15, oops, sorry, 15 of whom had um, an invasive cancer, 17 had these stick lesions, these serous tubal in, uh, in situ or carcinoma in situ lesions. But you can see that of the uh, cancers that were found, um, that 40% of these cancers were already metastatic outside of the pelvis, right? This is at the earliest possible phase, completely asymptomatic people with completely normal CA125 and ultrasound. And that of these individuals, half of them recurred. Half of them recurred. Right? And with the stick lesions, as I say, about 6% of these women recurred. And the latency period for the recurrence in these individuals, as I say, was quite prolonged. So it really poses a challenge for us if we have a patient who has risk-reducing surgery, who's found to have a tubal carcinoma in situ lesion, we don't know if we should treat her with chemotherapy. We have absolutely no idea about whether this actually influences her risk of recurrence. And I would submit to you, having managed two of these patients, if the recurrences happen five years later, I'm not entirely convinced that subjecting her to chemotherapy is actually going to affect her disease trajectory. But this is very controversial still in our world. So I'm going to um, finish. I'm not going to talk about this. But rather, I'm going to share with you some interesting, I think, um, where next, one of the where nexts, which is going back full stop to the prevalence of mutations 
in certain populations. Remember I'd said to you, one in 40 Ashkenazi Jewish individuals has a BRCA mutation. There has been an interest in, should we in fact abandon using family history and personal history as triggers for genetic testing, and should we just test everybody? Everybody who's Jewish. And there are two studies now, actually three studies, but I'm gonna share with you some data from England, which looked at 1,000 individuals who were Ashkenazi Jewish in or around London, who had, uh, again, they described this as um, individuals who had four grandparents of Ashkenazi Jewish origin, randomized these two individuals, should we only test those people with a family history? And there are certain triggers that you can imagine, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, both bilateral breast cancer. Should that be the trigger for genetic testing? Or should we, in fact, just test everybody? And what they found is that population-based screening, the PS arm, detected 56% more mutations than just relying upon family history. And here's another uh, sort of study, actually two, three studies, all of which looked at different populations where there was a very enriched population of Ashkenazi Jews, all of which basically found that half of the individuals with a mutation did not have any family history whatsoever of breast or ovarian cancer. So there's currently a study, which I participated in LA, in certain cities around the United States called the B4 study, inviting individuals who have Ashkenazi Jewish parentage um, to participate in this research study and get tested. I can certainly put you in touch with people who are doing that if that applies. I think the closest center for us is probably Boston. Um, but I think that the importance of this work really speaks to the need for ongoing research to define what is the prevalence of these genetic mutations in different populations so that we can effectively identify these people and get them in a research trial ideally and probably at this point in time take out their tubes and ovaries because unfortunately relying upon um, sort of early presentation with symptoms um, and even, unfortunately, uh, using our very outdated and kind of clunky screening modalities, we're going to miss these women. And by the time they've been diagnosed, even with an early stage cancer, unfortunately, as I've shown you, um, they will, most of them will succumb to recurrent uh, disease. So sort of a very quick uh, sort of visit to BRCA mutations and what we understand about what these look like around the world and also some of the disease characteristics. Um, but I'm very happy to be here at Dartmouth. I think that we're going to have to probably rework a little bit of our research hypotheses, given the population we have here. But that's OK, because undoubtedly, as we do more genetic testing, we're going to find other mutations. And there's a lot of territory still to yet be discovered. What do these mutations look like in our populations here? So thank you very much. Happy to take any questions at all um, about this. Right, so it was the one, it was the founder mutations, which are quite common in both Sephardim and Ashkenazim, but nonetheless, um, they are typically referred to as Ashkenazi Jewish founder mutations just because we have so much, we've studied that population so much more. It does turn out the Sephardim have their own unique um, mutations, own personal mutations. Uh, but, uh, but to be fair, uh, both Sephardim and Ashkenazis they see this, the, the Jewish founder mutations are the most common, uh, the three uh, mutations are the most common in both populations. It was just a really interesting um, finding uh, that many of these people actually probably were, as I say, the conversos and just did not know that. Yeah, kind of interesting sleuthing, genetic sleuthing. Yeah. Yes, please. Great talk. I was just wondering the persistence of some of these mutations. Would that suggest that there's some fitness conferred by them leading up to reproductive age? Can you talk about that? Fitness, and you well, mean? Sure. So that's a really good question. Right. So I'm sorry, switching gears now. So you can argue from a, from a Darwinian perspective, if they're so prevalent, is there any benefit? So the one benefit is that if you get cancer, you're going to live longer. Yay. Right. Probably under chemo. Um, so I think 
no, I, I can't speak to any, uh, um, I can't speak to any other benefits, but I will share with you some really interesting research. We started to look at this and I just, I just could not get my act together to finish. But it would appear that the BRCA mutation, not surprisingly, while it increases the risk of these serous pelvic cancers, may also be associated with subfertility, so that women who have these BRCA mutations may have lower fecundity. And there's even some newer data to suggest that there is an increased risk of heart disease. So much interest, again, and not surprising, right, that a genetic mutation, which is so powerful in the sense that the BRCA protein, as best we understand it, is one of the homologous recombination pathways. It's interesting to posit what might be some of the other organ system repercussions of this mutation. But benefits and survival uh, advantage, I, I, I have to draw a blank other than my own little teeny world of ovarian cancer. Yeah. But it's interesting to posit, and, and no doubt the mutations, I mean, you could also say to me, I, I also would like to study, and, and will be challenged to do that, I think, here, but is there a difference between the founder mutation, sort of Ashkenazi or Sephardic three founder mutations, and not personal or non-founder mutations? Because it begs the question, is there a any impact on where the mutation occurs in the gene. We know that there's some ovarian cancer cluster regions on BRCA1 and 2 that seem to preferentially uh, lead to ovarian cancer as opposed to breast cancer. We all have patients in our practice who have just a, a surfeit of ovarian cancer, but no one has breast cancer, right, or the exact opposite. So we don't really understand what is it about the specific mutation, its position on the gene, et cetera, that drives some families towards more of a breast cancer phenotype versus more of an ovarian cancer phenotype. We have absolutely no idea about this whatsoever. Yeah? For BRCA carriers with metastatic breast cancer, the heart inhibitors are you know, okay. Whether the adjuvant setting it looks better or similar to what you're seeing in ovarian. So is there a role for prevention? So these are great questions. And I think, you know, I was, I was kind of simultaneously hoping and afraid that someone would pose the question to me, about what, what are the lessons learned from ovary that we can actually perhaps extrapolate to breast? Because I would submit to those of you in the audience who are medical oncologists and treat breast cancer, a much more common cancer, right? Oh, my gosh. Um, the cisplatin sensitivity that we see so dominating the landscape of response in ovarian cancer, I don't know that that's definitely been true, proven true in breast cancer. And there are some trials that suggest they behave in a similar way, but I think some trials that suggest the lessons learned from ovarian cancer response to therapy do not apply. We're moving more towards this notion of cisplatin sensitivity as perhaps a biomarker for homologous recombination. But again, I don't know that's true in my world, but I don't know that that's true in breast cancer. Um, but really interesting to pause. How is it? How is it that the same mutation, which ostensibly causes the same derangement, can result in a completely different disease trajectory and different response to the exact same drugs? If you're above the belt versus below the belt, I have no idea. Pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. This presentation. Thank you. Um, I, I may have missed the point you made when opiate tubes were removed, leaving the ovary intact. Did that confer protection to the breast? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. It's complicated. We don't know. We're hormone-dependent cancer. Absolutely. Right. And, and recognize that's an important question to answer, but like so much in clinical medicine, the, 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 um, basically the horses have left the barn. So, so many of our patients who are choosing to have prophylactic surgery are going to have prophylactic mastectomy. That'll be very, it will be important to do a large um, multi-institutional study to pose some of these questions, but we literally don't know yet because that interval salpingectomy, which theoretically we should be offering to women only in a clinical trial so that we can actually capture them and follow, um, that, that is still so incredibly investigational. Is there anything known about the uh, characteristics of the fibria that uh, create the risk factor for cancer developing at that site? Again, we posit, based on just our love and knowledge of the peritoneal cavity, that there's a ton of surface area of the fallopian tube, right, guys? That it is, you know, right in the crosshairs of the um, proximity to the ovary with the very high exposure, we posit, of hormones by virtue of being right next to the ovary. 
Um, but beyond, and also we could argue, we could argue that the, it has a very, um, a very rich blood supply because of the broad ligament. And finally, it is in fact connected to the outside world because you could have ascending exposure to whatever evil circulating pathogens in the outside world that can enter through the cervix, through the ovary, through the uterus, and then out through the fallopian tube. But we tend to see these cancers occur preferentially at the fimbria. And many of the things that I've described, other than the surface area and proximity to ovary, extend to the entire fallopian tube. So we don't really know what's so magical about the fimbria. I don't know. Laura, do you guys have any thoughts about that, Jess, Laura, anything? I think there's a lot of high turnover, a lot of exposure during ovulation due to all those factors as well. So I think it's largely conjecture at this point, but it's fascinating and it's consistent. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you.